that reveals a very important element of what the gospel is. We've been on a journey these last several weeks at ECC Off Island, a, a journey where we've been looking at what is the gospel on our Friday morning worship gatherings. Now, if you've missed the message along the way and you feel like you kind of have a gap in there, no need to fear because in your bulletins you'll notice that there's a website, eccoffisland.org. You can go to the website. It's a great ministry tool. It has an archive of all the past sermons. It's on there. And so if, if, if you miss a week or want someone to hear something, or it's just, just check it out. It's a good tool for, for those you know, that haven't seen it yet. Um, but what we've been talking about so far in this series is what is the gospel and really why does it matter? And we've been learning that, that the gospel is the message. It's the message of the good news that God has sent his son who died on the cross, was resurrected on the third day that we'll celebrate a week from today. Jesus died on the cross for us and the message of the gospel is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he now offers us forgiveness and he does this because he wants to display his glory. Last week, what we did is we, we asked, well, okay, in this, in this progression, what does the gospel provide? And so I understand we're learning what it is, but what does it actually do? Like, what does it provide for us? Last week, we, we answered the question by saying, well, it provides the joy of justification. So that was what we talked about last week, that we are declared innocent because Christ died in our place on the cross, and he offers us that forgiveness. We'll respond with simply faith alone. Now, today is a continuation. It's kind of part two, asking the same question. Well, what does the gospel provide? Today we're saying it provides the strength for sanctification. So the gospel provides justification and sanctification. Now, I already know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, man, I came to church, and he's using these big words, and I don't even know what he's talking about. Why can't he use English or a different version of it, at least, that's not so confusing with these, these super long sentences? Okay, well, first of all, these words are in the Bible, and so I didn't make them up. And if you would just track with me and not check out, I promise you that you're going to see how these words matter, make a big difference. These are big words with big significance. And so let's try to understand these words if we just look at it by looking at what salvation is, because we use that word a lot, salvation. So that's familiar to us. Now, salvation actually has three parts. There's actually a progression. And so in talking about salvation, the first part is, we talked a second ago, justification. That's where it begins. That's where someone realizes that they're a sinner, they repent of their sins, they believe in Jesus, and now they're in Christ. This is what we talked about last week. This is all review from last week. And what happens is now you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and now you belong to Jesus. You have been declared innocent, declared righteous. And so all of the sins that you did aren't held against you because Jesus paid it all on the cross. So when you hear someone say, I've been saved, we've heard that language a lot, what they're talking about is this first part of being justified. I've been saved. I've been forgiven. I have responded with faith, and so now I have been justified, declared innocent before God. 
So that's where salvation begins. But there's a second one called sanctification. Now, to sanctify just means, big word, it just means to make holy. We sang about it in Refiner's Fire, and I want to be holy, ready to do your will. And so to be sanctified simply means to be made holy. And so sanctification is simply referring to the lifelong process, the life of faith, where you are pursuing Jesus, where you are learning to be more like him. So Jesus says, follow me. It's not just a one-time thing. He says, follow me. The rest of your life, continue in pursuing me. Keep your focus on me. And so this life of faith, this life of following Jesus is the life of being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, growing spiritually. The third is glorification. That's after you die and you're resurrected and you will have a glorified body and you will live with Jesus and the rest of his people forever in a place called heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. And so it begins with you being justified, the life of growing and being sanctified, and then one day when it's complete after you die, you'll be glorified. And so that's simple. I mean, you think, okay, well, that makes a little bit more sense. But we have to understand that we have to keep both justification and sanctification in their proper place because they're different. The first one, being justified, is an act. It's a one-time thing where God declares you're forgiven, you are justified, you are innocent. It's not a process. Being justified is an act. Sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong process. So step one, being justified, not a process. It's a, de a, de a declared act. You are forgiven. You belong to me. But the life of faith of being sanctified is an ongoing process. And we must keep these two in balance. Because listen, this is what all of us do. Me too. Every one of us leans towards one or the other. And we lean to overemphasize one or the other. And if you overemphasize either one, it can be devastating for your soul. And so, for example, if your personality and you're wired to lean towards, to overemphasize justification, you know what's going to happen potentially? You're going to struggle with license. What do you mean license? What I mean is that you say, okay, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I'm accepted. I know that God loves me. I've been justified. And so, therefore, I have a license to keep sinning because God forgives me anyway. And so I don't really have to worry about pursuing holiness because I'm already justified. I'm already forgiven. I have a license to live however I want. And so there's no effort to pursue Christ. There's no effort to try and grow spiritually because I'm already forgiven. I'm going to heaven already. I got my get out of hell free card. And so I don't really need to worry about growing because I'm good. I received Jesus. I even got baptized. I'm, I'm, I got my fire insurance. So I don't need to worry about it anymore. And so things like purity and modesty and integrity and work ethic and service seems kind of passe. It's like, oh, those words like purity and modesty, that's like from the 1950s. That's old-fashioned, and that's outdated. We're in the modern age now, and we're, we're free from having to worry about 
these things like being holy. And so if you overemphasize justification, you may lean towards having this license, this free from even having to obey. Now, others of you don't worry about that. You're on the other end. You overemphasize sanctification. And the reason is that for you, you're a very um, performance-driven person. And so you might be falling into legalism. Not license for you. It might be legalism. And legalism, quite honestly, is this tendency that's in our hearts to measure your worth by your performance. Legalism is how we can tend to measure our worth by how well we are doing. And on any given day, if you have a good day, you got up and you had your quiet time and you prayed and, and, and you give offering that week, well, then now you feel good about yourself. But if you have a rough week, all of a sudden, God doesn't love me. Where's Jesus? And, and we start falling apart. And that's the problem, is if it's performance-based, you're going to be disappointed. Because you're never going to live up to your own expectations. So legalism is this desire to be approved by God by doing, even if it's doing good things. It's performance-based. It's performance-driven. You can't. You cannot overemphasize either. License is no good, just like legalism is equally damaging. Both are unhealthy and unbiblical. And so we cannot lean. What we need to do is keep both being justified and sanctified together under the umbrella of disciple-making, of making and developing disciples. And so under discipleship, we have to keep both of these together. And the only way to avoid either license, to don't worry about for being growing or pursuing Christ, and then legalism, where you're bound by your own expectations of performance, to avoid legalism or license, you have to be gospel-centered. That's the only way, is to truly be gospel-centered. You say, well, how does that work? Well, I'll just remind you that here at our church, ECC Off-Island, our mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That's what we're about. And we do that by proclaiming the gospel. And so the very same gospel that justifies you is the same gospel that then sanctifies you. And we must keep a balance and not go towards license or legalism. Now, I'm going to give you a heads up, a message like today that is focused on sanctification. For many of you, it's going to be really hard because you're very performance driven, very rule-keeping, checklist-checking-oriented, and, and you may be tempted to doubt your salvation. That is not my intention this morning. My goal is not to cause anyone to doubt their salvation. We want to be balanced with keeping both of these in place. So let's look at this together. Let's look at four statements from Philippians 2, where we just read, about what sanctification is how it works, and how to maintain the sense of balance and experiencing true transformation. Verse 12, we just read, I'll read it to you again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, for many people, that is a scary verse, and pastors don't like it. Because we, people are not going to understand. And they're going to think, 
that work out your salvation means that you have to earn your way to heaven. And so we try to ignore these passages or, or not look at them because it's scary and people don't understand what this means. But quite honestly, it really isn't that scary. It really isn't, I promise you. You see, in the previous 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, we didn't read them today, but do so. It's amazing. It describes, it's high Christology is what it is. It talks about who Jesus is. It talks about his beauty and his glory, how he came from heaven. He left his palace in heaven. He came down. He condescended, became a human, became a servant, sacrificed himself for us, and he is now the Lord. He is the king. Jesus is glorious. And these first 11 verses describe how amazing Jesus is. He is the Christ. And then verse 12 says, Therefore, in light of how beautiful and wise and glorious and what a redeemer Jesus is, therefore, therefore, in light of who Jesus is, therefore, do what? Obey. You've, you've been obeying. Continue to obey. And so he's, he's connecting here in light of the beauty and glory of Jesus, his salvation, his redemption he's given to us. Now work your salvation. Now when he's saying that, is he talking about the first phase of justification? No. Because in many other verses, including in chapter 3 of this same book, he describes clearly that no one can earn their salvation. You are justified by faith alone. Jesus accomplished it for you. We talked about last week. We simply respond with faith and we're saved. And so if it's not being justified, clearly he's talking about sanctification. This ongoing process of growing spiritually. This process that, yes, takes work. He says, work at it. Don't just sit on your hands doing nothing. Have a faith that is active. And he says, with fear and trembling, he says there's this sobering reality, this humility that comes with it in light of what Christ did for us. Now, does it take work to obey? Let me just ask you that. Of course it does. How many of you are parents? Any parents with somewhat small children at home? All right. Is it work to make them obey? Yeah, it is. It's a lot of work because your kids share your DNA. And I'm sorry but you're as sinful as they are. As sinful as your parents were, as their grandparents were, as their grandparents were, going all the way to our father, our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, who sinned, rebelled against God. We share his DNA, spiritually as much as it is physically. We are sinners. Obedience does not come naturally to us. It's hard. See, God has forgiven us because Jesus died in our place. And so his forgiveness has freed us from judgment. Listen, we are not condemned. If you have believed in Jesus, then you will not be condemned. You are free from God's judgment. You're free. But we are not free from obedience. Big difference. It's very hard for God to be satisfied. It took Jesus dying on the cross to satisfy him. But now that that has been done, we are able to please him. So we are free from judgment, but we are not free from obedience. And here's why I say that. If we're really honest, we all obey. Every single one of us 
is very obedient to our idols. Hopefully that it's the one true God is our one true God, but if not, it's going to be a false God, an idol. We're all going to obey. So we either are being obedient to our fleeting, selfish desires, our false God, our counterfeit God, our idols. So either we're very obedient to our selfish, fleeting desires, or we're obedient to the one true God. But we're all slaves. That sounds so crazy, but we are. We're all enslaved to something. There's something that our heart is just gripped by. And so that is why it says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word for Lord means master. A master owns a slave. The slave has no rights. And so when you confess him as your Lord, you're confessing him as your master. You're saying, I give up being a servant to my own selfish agenda, and now I'm a servant to you. Because I don't want to serve myself. I want to serve you now. I've been gripped by your beauty and your glory and the work on the cross for me, and I now want to serve you, Jesus. But we're going to serve. We're going to obey. The question isn't, do we obey? The question is, what do we obey? So what is the power? What is the power for us to actually be obedient to Jesus? See, the gospel says, Because you've been forgiven, and we have been forgiven, you are free from slavery to sin, so now you are bound to God. You are not bound to rules. Hear me. We're not bound to rules keeping. We are bound to Jesus. It's about a relationship. It's about wanting to please him, and it's all about relationship. It is not about rules keeping, so you're bound to a person. And so what is this power for us to live victoriously and to grow in our holiness and our sanctification, to grow spiritually, to have our addictions, to have less of a hold on us, to have what we're just wired towards, to have less of a hold on us. What must we do? What is the power to live a more holy, more life-pleasing to God? Verse 13 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you. His presence, his Holy Spirit is literally in you. He is working in you. That is the power for our transformation, for us to really be different, to live changed lives that really make a difference for God's kingdom is God working in us. How does this work? It says that he, he what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. He changes our will. Your desires are changed. He changes your will. Now your will, your desires are for God's good pleasure. And so what happens is, the more you're gripped by the gospel, the more you see the beauty of Jesus, the more glory you see in Jesus and in other things, what happens is your will, your heart is changed, and now you want to. You see, being gospel-centered is not about have to. Oh, I have to obey God. That's religion. I have to do this. I have to keep to these rules. I have to pray at this time in this exact same motion. I have to do these things or, or God won't be pleased with me. What the gospel does is totally different. It changes your will. Where now it's not a have to. It's a, man, I really want to. I want to. I don't have to obey Jesus. 
I want to. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to let him down. I truly have been so gripped by his beauty that I want to be close to him. And so when I see something that might tempt me, I say, I don't want to look in that direction because that will rob me of intimacy with Jesus. And so I would rather not have that fleeting pleasure because I get something so much better. I get God. Intimacy with him. And so it's about having a transformed heart. He changes our will that now is for his good pleasure. And so his empowering presence through his spirit empowers us to live a life of purity and integrity and honesty and of hard work and of self-sacrifice. Basically, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does your life resemble any of those things? It should. And the power to live like that is his powerful working in you, his Holy Spirit. So we'll talk more about how that works in a minute, but I already know what some of you are thinking. Okay, I understand on a certain theoretical level what you're saying up there about the Spirit of God working, changing your desires. Okay, I, I understand that the power for sanctification is the Holy Spirit. Okay, I get that, but I already know what's going to happen. I'm going to fail. I've tried that before. I've tried. I'm human. What's the point? I'm going to fail anyway. Why even bother? We think it's not attainable. We think purity and holiness is just not possible. And so we say, why even try? Let's talk about for a second about the purpose. So number one, we talked about the power for sanctification, and that is the Holy Spirit. Number two, what is the purpose of your sanctification? Next two verses in Philippians, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why should we not grumble, it says? Why should we pursue holiness, that you may be blameless and innocent children, without blemish? that you can shine brightly in this crooked world of Abu Dhabi, where he's put us, to shine as lights in this generation. You live in this one, not a previous one, not a future one. This is the generation God's given you to live in, in this city, in this place, in this time, and it's a privilege for us to live here. And the purpose of our sanctification is to be like Christ. Being like Christ, that is the purpose. That we can shine brightly and reflect the beauty. And I love what Kashif said, that he now has seen the light and he says that he shares the light. He's no longer in darkness. That's exactly what we're seeing here. That's the purpose. You see, God wants us to live lives of purity and integrity and self-control. Why? Because it glorifies him. Do you think God the Father wants little, spoiled, whiny, complaining children? Do you want that for your kids? Surely you don't. Surely when you see the child in the car, four on the ground, ah, crying, temper tantrum, you're thinking, oh, poor mom and dad. Yet I, I would hope that those parents don't want that either. 
And it's not because they're embarrassed. Surely it's deeper than that. It's not good for that child. Because when that child grows up, what kind of an adult is he going to be? A miserable adult, a pampered, self-centered adult. And we don't want that for our kids. Do you think God wants that for you? He's your father. He wants you to be mature. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to be sound. He wants you to love him and to trust him. And so the purpose is for you to be like Christ because it displays his beauty and it displays his glory. That's what it's about. That's what God wants the most anyway is to display his glory. And when his children are mature, when they're living lives of purity, he gets the glory. We need to reflect his image. But guess what all of us tend to have? An image problem. I promise you, most of us have an image problem. We actually believe that if people perceive us a certain way, that we'll be happy. We do it. We all do it. We all want to be perceived a certain way. We only want to show what we want to show, and we actually believe that as long as everyone thinks that we're something that we're presenting, then we're going to have a measure of happiness. We want to look good. And so to give you an example of this, just last week, I mentioned this last time, that my, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, Bonnie's sister, came to visit from Texas, had a week showing them around Abu Dhabi and Dubai. They're from Texas. They had no idea what they were going to see here. They're taking pictures, like 800 pictures in a week, and it's like, will you stop with the picture? But they were just blowing away. And every night, guess what they did? They, they got on their little either phone or laptop or, or iPad, all three of them, and they were posting it on what you think. Facebook, how did you know? It's like sign operating procedure. That's what you do. You go visit somewhere, you take pictures, and you put it on Facebook. Why? Why do we do that? Seriously. I don't even have a Facebook. So, I mean, I, I've thought about it, but I would take too much time. I'd waste my time on it. So I, I've chosen to abstain from Facebook. I'm not saying it's evil, but what Facebook does do is it provides us an opportunity to maintain our image. You see, for a Texan, and it was funny, because it was like, man, this is going to be great for Facebook envy. And I was like, what is that? And they said, oh, yeah, there's, there's, this, there's this new term called Facebook envy. And people log on Facebook, and they're like little voyeurs, and you're looking through everyone's life. But you put it out there, so it's not really voyeurism. It's like sleeping in your bed with the windows open. You can't blame anyone if they look in. Windows are open, all right? So Facebook is having all your windows open, yet you're making your life look as good as possible, and you never show the junk on Facebook. Now, there's a rare person that is angry at the ex or whatever, and they go on a rant, and what do you do? Unfriend or, or block so that you don't have to see that. Because you don't want to see that on Facebook. You want to see all the beauty, and you want to see the pictures. But then what happens is you go on there, and your friend's life looks exciting. They went to Abu Dhabi. And I just live in central Texas, and my life stinks. And so now all of a sudden, their friends at home, their life isn't as exciting because Sarah and Charlie got to go visit Dubai and go to the Burj Khalifa. We all do it. We all do it. We all do our absolute best to maintain our image. And we actually think 
we believe the lie that maintaining our image will bring us happiness. It won't. It won't. You know where where happiness comes from? Where joy comes from? Holiness. Happiness flows from holiness. You're living a life with a clear conscience. You're living a life of integrity and of purity with nothing to hide. And you serve others. And you love your God. And you're pursuing him. And you're killing your sin. Guess what you're going to have? You're going to have joy. You're going to have plenty of joy. If you live for yourself, selfishly make no effort to pursue Christ, and by maintaining the image, you might look good, but I'm telling you, if you want to have true joy, reflect the image of Jesus in your life, not your own. Fight against that. This is critical. The power for sanctification is the Holy Spirit work in our life. The purpose is that we'll reflect the image of God, his beauty, his glory here and across the nations. How do we do it? How do we actually accomplish it? Well, what is the process? Number three, the process of sanctification. We talked about the power, okay, of sanctification. The purpose of it, number three, what is the process of sanctification? Verse 16, hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Hold on to the word of life so that you will run and that you won't labor in vain. This he's talking about working your salvation, running, laboring. Now, not in vain, but it's meaningful. So he's talking about this issue of, of working not to be saved, but because you have been saved, you have the power, and now you can be obedient to God. And how does it work? The process must be centered on, what did he say? The word of life. The process must be centered on the word of life, must be centered on God's word. So if you want to grow spiritually, grow in your holiness, and have more integrity and purity, and really live a life that pleases God, It must be centered on the Word. So you have to read the Word. You have to meditate on the Word. You have to sing the Word. You have to listen to the Word. You have to preach the Word to yourself. You have to believe the Word. You have to obey the Word. Be about the Word. That is the only way that you'll have any hope of transformation is if it's centered solely on the Word. Live it, breathe it, pray it, memorize it, meditate on it. Obey it. This, if it's centered on the word of life, as Paul says, then you'll be sanctified. Pray. Spend time with Jesus in solitude. Our life is so noisy. Noise everywhere. If you can just spend some time in quiet, reading, meditating, praying, connecting with Christ, it'll change everything. You see, we, because of Christ's work on the cross, our justification, we are free from the power of sin. We really are. We're free from the penalty of sin, but we are not yet free from the presence of sin. The power and the penalty are gone, but the presence remains until we're glorified. So what must we do? We must fight. We must fight for faith. It's not a passive, one-time thing. You must fight. Well, how do you fight? You fight with the gospel. That's how you fight. 
there's pain and there's struggle and there's sometimes suffering with, with sanctification growing. We have to stare at our ugly sin in the face, but you got to punch it out. You have to fight against your sin. You see, we can't believe the lies. Sin lies to us. I'm telling you, sin lies. Sin says that you're going to find pleasure, that you're going to find acceptance, that you're going to find meaning if you'll just do this or look at this or buy that or whatever. We actually believe that by acquiring possessions or by gossiping or by looking at pornography, we actually think that that's going to bring a measure of meaning or joy. But it doesn't. If we believed that sin was really lying to us, then we wouldn't partake in it. If we truly believed that that sin was not going to satisfy us, we wouldn't be a part of it. The reason why we sin, you know why, honestly, why we choose to sin? Because we believe the lie. We believe the lie. And maybe in that moment, it may just be a moment of weakness, but nonetheless, in that moment, we believe the lie. We think that that sin, that that attitude, that pursuing more money, more possessions, more whatever, we actually think that that's going to satisfy us. But it won't. It won't. Don't believe the lie. Fight for the truth. Replace the lies with the truth of the gospel. That's what changes you. That's what will change you is the truth of the, of the scriptures, that God loves you and he wants more for you. And so the fight for sanctification, listen, is not a fight for perfection. It's not. It's a fight for belief. The fight for sanctification is not a fight for, for perfection. It is a fight to believe. To believe what? To believe that Jesus is better. To believe that intimacy with God is better, more satisfying, more thrilling, more fulfilling than any sin could possibly offer. We have to fight for that belief that is the truth, but this requires gospel-driven, Holy Spirit-empowered effort, made possible because Jesus died on the cross and is made impossible. But some of you think, man, I just can't do that. There's just no way. It's too hard. I, I can't see Jesus being more valuable, more fulfilling than, than this sin, this habit, this whatever. I just have the hardest time thinking that's even possible. Remember something. Your God in heaven, if you're a believer in Jesus, he's your father. And he delights in you. He loves you. Your father thinks you're wonderful. How many of you remember your children's first steps? And remember that? I do. Well, my son Josh was born premature, very small, took weeks to get out of the hospital, and it was a long process, and he walked quite late for his age. And I remember when he started to take his first steps, I was blown away. As the little baby that was in the incubator for so many weeks, all of a sudden, like a year and a half old, was finally, be, finally beginning to walk. And he would wobble, and then he would fall down. And he would try to get up, and then he would, he would take, and he would fall down. He kept wobbling and standing up and taking one step, and then he would fall down. Now, what if I were to look to my wife and say, hey, Bonnie, look at my son. He's a failure. He can't even walk. He keeps falling. He would do it from your side of the family. 
Because my side of the family, they're all walkers. I mean, everyone can walk in the Levant side of them. But the McWright, I don't know. He's awfully McWrightish. It's got to be your side of the family because my boy's going to be able to walk. I'm so disappointed in my son. Why, why can't he just walk? Do you think I said that? It was quite the opposite. I would see him fall. And I had it on video. Like, Come on, Josh, get up. Come on, get up. You can do it. And he'd get up and he'd smile and he was walking towards me and say, Come on, come on. And then I say, He's doing it. He's doing it. He's actually walking. And then he would fall. I'd say, come on, come on, come on, get up again. You can do this. You can do this. Take another step. Take another step. You can do this. And then guess what would happen? He was walking. And he would fall far less frequently. He would still fall, but far less often. And then, and then he started running and then jumping. And he's a healthy, minuscule, but a healthy eight-year-old boy. Do you think God sees you when you're falling and he says, shame on you? Or do you think your father in heaven is cheering you on, saying, one more step, come on. Get up. You can do it. Get up. Don't stay down. Get up. Come on. Walk to daddy. That's what God in heaven is saying to you. He doesn't want to see you on the ground. He wants you to get up. And he loves you. He delights in seeing you walk. He delights in seeing you conquer that sin. Yes, you stumble. But he's your father saying, come on. I love you. I can see that one day you're going to be running a marathon. Yes, you're young right now, but I, I see the past, the present, the future as one. And so I see you being victorious. Don't give up. Stand up and take another step. I love you. You belong to me. I sent Jesus to die for you. You mean everything to me. Get up and walk. That's your Father in heaven. That's sanctification. It's not a, a to-do list. It's, it's not a, if you don't do this, nor else. That's not God. He sent his son to justify you. And now he's giving you his spirit to sanctify you. To make you more like him. To grow up. To take those steps. To be victorious. He has amazing plans for you. He has amazing plans for you. But sanctification is a cooperation. It's not all God. It's a cooperation. You have free will. You must yield to him. You must submit to him. You must be about the word. You must read the word and sense your father saying, come on, get up, come on. But if you don't ever spend time with him, you're not going to sense that. The process for sanctification requires your gospel-given, Holy Spirit-empowered effort centered upon the word of life. And then you'll experience transformation, and you'll fall down far less. Number four, as we close, the people for sanctification. So we've talked already, number four, the people for sanctification. Verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. He's talking about the people. He's talking about he's rejoicing with fellow believers, and they're rejoicing with him. He has poured his life out to serve the church. Who are the people for your sanctification? Look around the room. The church. That is the people for your spiritual growth. You cannot do it alone. You must not even try to do it alone. You can't. As Paul says, we're doing this together. I've sacrificed for you. I rejoice in you. You rejoice in me. We we have community. And so you need community, Christ-centered relationships if you have any hope of growing. You cannot get up and walk alone. You need others to help you. God did not design you to pursue him alone. He made you to do it as you rejoice with others, as Paul describes here. Christ-centered community, accountability, friendships is critical for growth. See, at our church, we've, we've, we've been able to take three simple words and say, this is our strategy. Simple. How do we make disciples? Three words. Growth, community, and influence. We're about growth here in UCCF Island. We want you to hear Christ-centered, Bible-based messages every Friday that I'm praying will inspire and fuel you to go home and pursue growth at home every day. So we're about growth, but we're also about influence. Like we're talking about Kashif today, going to labor camps, talking about serving and making disciples of the kids' ministry. That's, that's influence. You're influencing others for Jesus. You're serving others, sharing the gospel. And so we're, we're about growth and influence, but we're also about community. You need community. You have to join a home group. If you haven't joined a home group, you're missing out because you're going to have accountability. People will pray with you to encourage you. You must not attempt to be part of our faith family without being in a home group. You need it. It's critical for your growth, for your sanctification. And here's why. I'll close with this. We all have dreams. Every one of us have dreams. We all want a better life. We all want life to improve. We all have aspirations and and hopes. We all have dreams. Some bigger than others, but you know what can happen to most of us? If we're really honest, our dreams can be somewhat self-centered. And God wants to rescue you from your little dreams. You know, I had a very small dream for my life, even just a year and a half ago, two years ago, I guess. Small dream. Live in Texas. I was an associate pastor of a large church, be there for a while, leave and go pastor a different church somewhere in Texas and just live my life serving in a local church there. Not a bad dream. But then God said, I have something so much better and bigger. Matthew, your dream for your life is pathetic and it's tiny. I have something better for you. You're going to go to a zoo church in Abu Dhabi. And you're going to make disciples of all nations. And you're, you're going to experience the gospel like, like never before in this incredible place. Yet I was, I was a little terrified at first at the, at the prospect. And I had people in my life that said, what are you doing? You need to go for it. I said, oh, I don't know. That's, that's a little scary. You need to come on. Go. God's calling you. I had people encouraging me, saying, Matthew, your dream is too small. God has a bigger dream for your life. Go pursue it. And it was people in my life 
that helped me, that encouraged me, that lifted me up, that prayed for me. I wasn't alone. God wants to rescue you from your little dream because he has a bigger one for you. But it's going to include other people. It's not just about you. It's about the nations. You need people. How are your relationships? Do you push people away? What is the quality of your relationships? These are important questions to really ponder. Because if you're suffering with your relationships, then it's very possible that your sanctification, your growth, really isn't in high gear. Justification, declared righteous by his work on the cross. Sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, of growing spiritually. You are saved by faith because of God's grace. And then you grow by faith because of God's grace. Same. The gospel saves you. The gospel sanctifies you. It's all about him. He gets all the glory in it. I'm thankful that my God loves me too much to leave me how I am. He wants me to grow. He wants you to grow too. And we're going to do it together. I say bow your heads. I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to please come to the front as we're going to have a song of response in just a moment. God has a vision, a dream, a plan for your life that's so much bigger than we could ever imagine. But it involves us yielding to him and he's going to do his work. Father, we thank you for giving us this awesome opportunity to come examine your word. We thank you for Philippians chapter 2. We thank you for the truth that you are with us, that you are for us. You want us to grow. You want us to pursue you. You want us to have gospel-driven, Holy Spirit-empowered efforts to be more like you. Help us to yield to you so that then you, through your spirit, can change us. Change our will. Change our hearts to desire you, Father. Help us fight for the faith that your son is more valuable, more satisfying than anything else this world has to offer. We thank you for our church and thank you that in the next hour we'll see seven of your children make their faith in you public through baptism. We thank you. Give you the glory and the thanksgiving for that. Thank you. We pray in your son's name. Stand and worship the Lord together.